Okay, so today uh, we're going to be going into our second lesson on St. Thomas's commentary on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, as always, I am both live streaming this to YouTube and I'm in a Discord call right now. So uh, if I do get asked questions, I'll make sure I try to uh, repeat those questions back uh, in summary form, uh, just so the people watching on YouTube uh, aren't super confused about what I'm trying to talk about. So today we're going to be going through articles three through six of the uh, Apostles' Creed. It's going to be really interesting because we're going to be talking about the Ascension, and today happens to be the traditional uh, date for the Ascension. I know uh, I'm ordinariate, and since I'm ordinariate, uh, today is actually a holy day of obligation for me. Uh, for all of you out there who uh, it's not a holy day of obligation, check to see if it actually is, because it might be. And uh, if you are ignorant of that fact, don't worry about it, but you should still pray rosary before bed uh, because important feast. Actually, you should play, pray rosary before bed anyways. What are you doing if you're not? So I went to a decent Novus Ordo. Yeah, I went to, um, I, I did go to a Novus Ordo today as well, and they did the uh, mass for Pope St. John uh, the first rather than for the Ascension, which I was a bit bummed out about, but, you know, it is what it is. So, uh, before we begin, as always, we're going to pray St. Thomas's uh, prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Ineffable Creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom hast appointed three hierarchies of angels, and set them in admirable order high above the heavens, and hast disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array, Thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind, and dispel for me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work, Thou who art true God and man, and livest and reignest forever and ever. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Okay, so let's get right into it. So uh, with Articles 3 through 6, uh, 5 actually was a bit longer than I thought it was originally. But uh, I'm just going to say it up front. Uh, next time, uh, I don't know whether I want to finish up. Or, now nah, I'll do 7 through... Well, next time we'll do 7 through 9, and then the week after we'll do 10 through 12. And then we'll be finally uh, finished with this and we'll be moving on to the commentary on the Ten Commandments, which uh, that might get actually a bit more um, argumentative because there's some interesting stuff he says uh, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. A lot of this stuff is more um, basic religious truths, but I feel like when it comes to specifically commenting on the Ten Commandments, we can get into stuff people don't know about, like... Uh, for example, certain rules surrounding Sabbath observance that uh, most Catholics just think that we kind of ignore. But actually, no, we still uh, keep the third commandment. So uh, third through sixth, I think it's the third commandment in the Catholic counting. Because with the Protestant counting, it was the fourth. I'm just going to guess it's the third. Um, I'm still used to the Protestant counting still. So uh, we, uh, in the Protestant counting, we smushed together uh nine and ten and then we also um had split up 
Uh, I think it's we split up one and two and we smush together nine and ten. I think that's what leads to the different countings. But okay, so three is going to be um, the conception of our Lord's body, Article four, his suffering, uh, crucifixion, death, and burial. Article five, the harrowing of hell and the resurrection. Then Article six is the ascension. So we have basically the chief mysteries of our Lord's life. Uh, because after this, we're just going to be talking about the judgment and then a few of the other uh, remaining articles of faith. So, uh, Article 3, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. So he begins uh, this chapter. I'm just going to call them chapters. He begins this chapter uh, with two fun illustrations that I think are helpful. It's It's working off of what actually we were talking a bit last week about, uh, which I had to unfortunately... <clears throat> cut off at the end a little bit i tried to explain in as much detail as i uh as i wanted to but it, it just I, I i don't feel like it was uh sufficient unfortunately but basically uh, if you go back and uh read what is this article two the end of article two last few paragraphs you're going to see saint thomas give this illustration um which is actually not really an illustration it's more like when it comes to all of these divine realities, we like to think, okay, he's giving all of these little earthly images that are that are cool and all and help us understand something that's heavenly. Actually, uh, it's the other way around, if you're going to consider it uh, uh, concerning the truth of things. Actually, created things are meant and made to image divine realities. So, for example, uh, if we think about baptism, the highest use of baptism was, well, is... Uh, baptism the highest use of water is baptism that's the highest use of water so the way in which we like to think about it is that water uh that we use water in baptism because it gives us an image of what it affects it affects the cleansing of sins so god found something that kind of did the same thing with uh with dirt so that's why we we use water in baptism but it's actually the other way around so God, the reason that God made water wash off dirt was because he wanted uh, something to symbolize the spiritual regeneration of the of the just. That's actually why. So really, we, we get our images backwards. And uh, this is actually a very hard habit to break. Um, but once you begin to contemplate this way, uh, things things actually make a lot more sense uh, considering divine perfections and how they, re they relate to earthly perfections. But the reason I say all this is because the chief image, uh, with all of the qualifications I just gave, of the generation of the sun is the word proceeding from the intellect. So if you remember, uh, our intellect will conceive a certain concept that is an imminent procession. So when we think about like speaking a word, I'm speaking words to you guys right now, and those words are going outside of me. They terminate in something outside of me. But when we have our intellectual word, that is our thoughts, our concepts that remain in the intellect, these uh, these aren't transient, transient meaning going out of like you would have, for example, with a father uh, or, or, a, or a parents really begetting a child. When parents beget a child, their child is numerically different from they are. Um, and if you remember uh, numeric and specific uh, identity from on the principles of nature, near, uh, I think it, that's also like the last chapter that he talks about that. But see, all this stuff connects. 
So uh, when it comes to the procession of the word in God proceeding by way of intellection, it's kind of like a parent uh, begetting a child in that uh, they are of identical species. But it's unlike that because with a parent begetting a child, the child is of the same species, but is different numerically. It has a different uh, individual uh, nature. But when it comes to God, uh, the begetting of the son from the father, it's a full communication of the self-same essence, uh, self-same nature that's possessed by the father. So that's what you kind of have to remember uh, going into Article 3 uh, as, a, as a quick reminder when it comes to the issue of the incarnation and these uh, these cool illustrations that he's giving. So uh, he says the Christian must not only believe in the incarnation of the Son of God, as we have seen, but also in his incarnation. St. John, after having written of things subtle and difficult to understand, points out the incarnation to us when he says, and the word was made flesh. Now, in order that we may understand something of this, I give two illustrations at the outset. It is clear that there is nothing more like the word of God than the word which is conceived in our mind but not spoken. Super important here. Now, no one knows this interior word in our mind except the one who conceives it, and then it is known only to others when it is pronounced. This is pretty obvious. The way in which our thoughts work, if I just sat here uh, next to the mic and just contemplated divine things and then never spoke it, then nobody would know about it. Only I would know about it because I'm the one uh, conceiving these thoughts. But uh, the word becomes known when I actually tell you guys about those things uh, which we're reading in here. So also, as long as the word of God was in the heart of the Father, it was not known except by the Father himself, because again, the Father conceives the word. But when the word assumed flesh as a word becomes audible, then was it first made manifest and known. Afterwards, he was seen upon earth and conversed with men. So, when it comes to the incarnation, the incarnation is as the speaking, the speaking of the word of God. So, you have the interior conception um, by way of intellection in the mind of God. You have that interior conception, which unlike our word, which is something accidental, God's word is something subsisting. It's a subsisting uh, person, which shares completely in the nature of the Father due to the perfection of God's intellection. So this makes a lot more sense when you're reading through the Gospels. Uh, if you notice, especially the Gospel of John, where uh, Christ is described as being the only one who reveals the Father, and him saying that he's going to reveal the that he does reveal the Father to him. Really, when we look at the faith face of Christ, we look at Christ when we hear his words, what we are getting is we're getting the spoken word. So we had we had the eternal begetting of the word in God from eternity that nobody could peer into. And then in the incarnation, we're actually having this eternal begetting, which if you remember, uh, the the thing that's being contemplating contemplated with the beginning of the sun is God contemplating himself. <clears throat> so the sun in his incarnation as the speaking of the eternal word is the principle by which we know God. <clears throat> when it comes to uh, our earthly, not well, our natural knowledge of God, 
our natural knowledge of God isn't under uh, his, <clears throat> his most formal aspect. So it's actually, uh, we, we say in natural uh, theology that it's under the aspect of being. It's not under the aspect of divinity. It isn't something which is the most uh, the most profound and intimate uh, recesses of the divine um, the divine heart that's being revealed to us. But in the incarnation of the Son, this is being spoken to us, and this is uh, this this is really why. In uh, this this is something actually that's very particularly Catholic is that in um, in our liturgy and, and also a bit when it comes to other. Um, quote apostolic traditions although there's only one apostolic tradition um in the other quote apostolic traditions what what you have in our traditions is a focus on the gospel why do we have such a big focus on the gospel i mean if you go to um at least most reformed churches at least the ones that uh, that i would frequent usually uh you'll get a interpretation uh, or uh, in the sermon, some sort of preaching of the epistles of St. Paul. Uh, those are very common. Rarely you get a touching of the Old Testament outside of maybe something like Genesis or the Psalms, um, occasionally a prophetic book. Uh, but usually it's the epistles. And then sometimes you'll get certain uh, parables of our Lord or, or such that are being uh, preached on. But really something completely unique um, to the Catholic tradition in, in the broad sense, Catholic is that we have a very high reverence for the Gospels. And in our devotional life, we actually have a very uh, strong focus on the life of Christ. That's something that's very unique to us. Uh, and a lot of people who are cradle Catholics don't really recognize this. You get, when it comes to uh, Catholic devotions, I mean, you get the, the Stations of the Cross, uh, you get the Rosary, which contemplates the mystery of our Lord's life. <laughs> You're constantly contemplating over and over and over again the life of Christ and even the direct words of Christ. Why is this? Why, why does our tradition do this? Well, this is actually the very reason why our tradition does it. Because no revelation of the heart of God, uh, because in, in natural theology, we're merely kind of getting the husk. We're getting God into the aspect of infinite being. We're not getting to the heart of God. We only get to the heart of God through Jesus Christ. Only through only through that word which is spoken by way of the incarnation, in the prophets, this is this is what our Lord means when our Lord is talking about the fact that you search you search the uh, Moses and the prophets. He's talking to the Pharisees, but they all speak of me, because in order for them to reveal something about God, it had to be something which in some way is in relation to the incarnation of Christ, because the incarnation of Christ is the center of all of redemptive history. I, I, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on this because of how important it is. Um, when we read the Gospels, uh, you, you see something very special about the Gospels. And you guys should be uh, meditating on the Gospels very frequently. And more than any other part of sacred scripture, you should be meditating on the Gospels. More than the Epistles of Paul, more than uh, the prophetic books, more than the sapiential books, even more than the Psalms. Uh, you should be um, meditating on the Gospels. So uh, that this is why that part of Scripture is so important, because everything kind of has its apex in the incarnation of Christ. There's a complete, um, I, I guess if you want to say it, an epistemic uh, and then also redemptive center in the incarnation of Christ. Because God has only spoken one word, and that word which he speaks is our Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else is only spoken in some sort of relation to that one word which is spoken. 
So when we when we want to find out how God is, what you do is you take a crucifix and you look at it. And that's how you find out how God is. It's a wonderful devotion. Everybody should buy a crucifix for their room or in front of their desk or whatever it may be and just just try it. Just just sit there and just look at the face of Christ uh, suffering. Just look at it and just contemplate. And what you are contemplating is the face of God. And in contemplating the face of God, you are contemplating the true, uh, the, the true similitude or representation. Uh, Christ is called the the perfect image of His substance in, in the beginning of the Book of Hebrews. That that's what you're contemplating right now. And it's only through that crucified Lord that we come to know God. So this is very, very, very important. But uh, continuing. Another example is that although the spoken word is known through hearing, it is neither seen nor touched and let is written on paper. So also the word of God was made both visible and tangible when he became flesh. And as the paper upon the word of a king is written, is called the word of a king. Uh, so also man uh, to whom the word of God is conjoined in one hypostasis is called the son of God. Take a great book and write it with the man's pen. And therefore, the holy apostles affirmed who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So when we think about, uh, this is actually a very important uh, point of Christology. When we think about the flesh of Christ, the, the humanity of Christ, uh, here, here's sort of like a quick um, poll to see whether uh, you guys are, are, are thinking of this rightly. You have to ask yourself, on the cross, did God die? On the cross, did God die? If you answer no, uh, on the cross, God didn't die, then you are an historian. If you say yes, then you're thinking rightly. Because in the hypostatic union, the humanity of Christ is joined, or the human humanity, a certain uh, individual man is, is said here, but um, that's that's a debate for a different day. You have the humanity of Christ joined to the eternal word. And therefore, uh, that is the flesh of God. Uh, you see in the book of Acts, the church is being described as being redeemed by the blood of God. This is something very important. Uh, the humanity of Christ truly joined um, to a divine person. So, yes, God did uh, suffer and die for us. So it's not only uh, we're getting some sort of uh, mere similitude of God. We're actually seeing God in Jesus Christ. Okay, so he goes over uh, a bunch of errors, Origen, Photius, Ebion, uh, Manic, uh, Valentinius, Arius, Polinarius, Eutyches, Nestorius. Yeah, we don't we don't really need to go over those errors. You can you can read them if you want. Um, I think that's a bit of a that would be a bit of a waste of our time, wouldn't that? Unless somebody, of course, has a question afterwards. Okay, so uh, and then he goes over. All of what we can learn about this, and this is absolute, it's absolute gold. I love this portion of uh, every, the commentary on every single one of uh, these articles. Okay, so I'm going to read and comment on them. So first, our faith is strengthened. So by the incarnation, our faith is strengthened. If, for instance, someone uh, should tell us about a certain foreign land, which he himself had never seen, we would not believe him to the extent we would if we had been there. Now, before Christ came in the world, the patriarchs and the prophets and John the Baptist told something of God. But men did not believe them as they believed Christ, who was with God, nay more, was one with God. Hence, far more firm is our faith, 
which is given to us by Christ himself. Thus, many mysteries of our faith, which before the coming of Christ were hidden from us, are now made clear. Again, if you if you when you look back at the Old Testament, while you do get, of course, all of these shadows, you get all of these prophecies. If you are reading them and uh, and St. Paul describes, for example, the Jews, they say the Jews, they have a certain veil over their hearts, even when they read the Old Testament today. Why don't all of the all of the Jews uh, become Christians? I mean, when we read the Old Testament, we read, uh, for example, the book of Isaiah. It's really obvious to us that it's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why don't the Jews uh, have faith in Christ, or at least explicit faith in the Christ uh, in Christ generally? Why don't they? The reason is because they uh, do not know God in flesh. He, he's the he's the key uh, to the entirety of the Old Testament to being able to understand it. To this day, they read it with a veil over their hearts. Um, it's unfortunate. Uh, but when we look at the Old Testament, it's really obvious. But if you're living at the time or you're living without uh, the revelation that's found in the New Testament, you're not going to know. It, it's going to be actually really difficult uh, to. But once you see it in the light of Christ, who is the key of all of revelation, it becomes obvious. So uh, it's the difference between um, sort of getting whispers. Uh, let's say, I don't know, uh, I'll, I'll think of like a weird example. Let's say you had a bunch of people, I don't know, telling you guys that I was moving to like Canada or something. A bunch of people were telling you, like let's say Hassan's telling you and, and Dende's telling you, everybody's telling you that I'm moving to Canada. You guys are like, okay, maybe you guys, you guys kind of know him. So I guess this might be trustworthy information. You guys would, your, your faith would be pretty light, but let's say I came up and I was like, yes, I'm moving to Canada. Well, in this case, it's going to be relatively clear because I, I, I'm the guy. So this is why uh, right there, the Jews and uh, those who read the uh, old covenant without the new covenant revelation have such a difficult time because they're having a bunch of people. Uh, well, they're reading a bunch of texts from not the guy, inspired by him, of course, uh, looking uh, by the prophetic light, speaking the very words of God, of course, but not God in flashed. So this there, there's actually a huge difference. While it's all inspired, uh, we, we kind of do in, in the Catholic tradition have this uh, bit of grading um, between the various sections in sacred scripture. So second, our hope is raised up. It is certain that the Son of Man did not come to us assuming our flesh for any trivial cause, but for an exceeding great advantage. For he made, as it were, a trade with us, assuming a living body and deigning to be born of a virgin in order to grant us his divinity. And thus he became man that he might make man divine. So you get this Athanasian statement uh, from all the incarnation. God became man so that man may become God. It's true. It's true. We are our hope is now uh, fulfilled because we're not going to have God coming down, suffering and dying. And then you're going to, this, this is why I think despair is just so crazy. It's just so crazy because what you have is uh, in the articles of faith, we believe God himself became man, uh, came, taught us, suffered, was crucified, died, was buried, soul separated from body, for three days and then rose again. And you're telling me that if you if you go to God with contrition, 
he's just going to, he's going to like put up all these barriers to, um, to giving you his grace. Of course not. It's, it's foolish. It's foolish. When you go to God with contrition and with humility, he's obviously going to grant his promises to you. He he came here not for a trivial cause, but for exceeding great advantage. If you already believe this, then then despair is just insane. Uh, every time I see it, I'm just flabbergasted. Why we could ever believe this? Like he died for you. You think you think he's just gonna like, you know, just just kind of sit there while you're like wallowing, sort of, and just say, I don't know you. I, I guess I'll just uh, kind of kind of just let you go to hell. You know, I, I only I only came down and died for you. It's just it's just uh, it's it's silly. Uh, I I don't I don't really get it. I don't really get it. So if you have despair. Contemplate Christ. Contemplate his life. Third, our charity is enkindled. There's no proof of divine charity so clear as the God, the creator of the uh, of all things, has made a creature. That our Lord has become our brother, and that the Son of God has made the Son of Man. Therefore, upon consideration of this, our love for God ought to be reignited and burst into flame. Again, this is so true. Obviously, if 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 God became man to die for us, then he obviously loves you. It's, it's, it's the simplest truth. It's very simple. So when we contemplate the face of Christ suffering, what we're going to see, what we're going to see in the revelation of the inner life of the blessed and holy Trinity, we're going to see that they love us. That's what we're going to see. Give me, give me one second. Actually, give me like, two seconds because now I have to mute both sides. Okay. Uh, I'm back. Okay. So uh, let's continue into article four. Fourth, this induces us to keep our souls pure. Our nature was exalted and ennobled by its union with God, to the extent of being assumed into union with a divine person. Indeed, after the incarnation, the angel would not permit St. John to worship him, although he allows this to be done by uh, before even by the greatest patriarchs. Therefore, one who reflects on this exaltation of our nature and is conscious of it should scorn to cheapen and lower himself and his nature by sin. You know, this is actually something kind of funny. I remember the the first time it was uh, Ratione Bus Fide, where I read uh, St. Thomas talk about the great dignity of man. Um, I, I remember just thinking right there. I'm like, there's there's so many uh, because this this phrase dignity of man has been used in uh, extremely uh, cringe ways by by some people. So you have this whole subset of Catholics who when they hear dignity of man, they kind of just roll their eyes. But no, no, it's actually. Uh, it's actually an exhortation when we consider the dignity of man. It isn't something um, to just be like, oh, okay, now we just kind of got to be like broadly nice to people. No, it, it's meant uh, to cause disgust in you uh, in relation to sin. That's what it's meant to do. When you see, when you consider, for example, uh, let's say uh, the popular one, sins against the sixth and the ninth commandment, fornication. With, with, when it comes to fornication, uh, as an example, we see that somebody is is doing that with 
the humanity that had been created and redeemed by Christ, at least redeemed uh, potentially. So when we consider uh, the sort of idea of the dignity of man, what the dignity of man is meant to do is it's meant to cause us a great deal of disgust for even the idea of using uh, our members or using ourselves for anything but working towards our last end because Christ took on humanity. So he died for us. Therefore, we ought to keep our dignity in the sense of not falling into sin. You just think about it. Uh, sin, sin is just an insane uh, sort of thing that, that we do. It's, it's, it's nuts. We, we, have, we, have, we have God take on uh, our humanity. We have God die for us. We have, we have God promising us the beatific vision, the very vision of God, not mediated by any species, raised up the divine mode of life, eternally, eternal felicity, eternal joy. That's what we have promised for us. And therefore, we have a great dignity in that. That's our calling. And it's just really disgusting and wretched, wretched when we look around us and have to see people abusing themselves in this way. When we see, uh, for example, um, when we see all of these uh, figures who are uh, doing this, you know, OnlyFans stuff, that, that's just that should disgust us because you have somebody who who has been given the promise if they have formed faith, of course, uh, of course, if they're in a state of grace, they've been given the promise of the beatific vision. If they come to Christ, that's the promise they've been given. They've had Christ die for them. They've had Christ uh, take on uh, a specifically identical nature with them. And they're going to sully themselves by whoring out their bodies. It's it's a ridiculous notion. It's uh, it, it really should just cause us to uh, utterly disgust ourselves in the fact that we would sin. And um, and this this is sort of and, and before anybody gets all mad at me for talking about uh, being disgusted in ourselves, it's a certain uh, spiritual virtue to do uh, do so. The spiritual writers write about this. Is that we we are we are to be utterly perplexed at ourselves, and then in being utterly perplexed by ourselves, be. Um, utterly perplexed at the mercy of God and to form a spirit of right contrition for our sins. So that that's what the dignity dignity of man means. It's not anything sort of weak and you know uh, cutesy. It is. It isn't that. And I I despise the fact that it's been taken like this. No, the the dignity of man is meant to make us become absolutely disgusted over sin. Okay, and then lastly. Fifth, by consideration of all this, our desire to come to Christ is, is intensified. If a king had a brother who was away from him a long distance, that brother would desire to come to the king to see him, to be with him, and to abide with him. So also Christ is our brother, and we should desire to be with him and to be united to him. The apostle desired to be dissolved and be with Christ, and it is in this desire which grows in us that we, as we meditate upon the incarnation of Christ. This is an important, an important last point from St. Thomas. And as a note, um, I don't have a stream after this. 
So I'm going to be uh, here as long as it takes me. So I, w- I will be occasionally stopping to ask uh, brief questions at the end of each article or to look in the, uh, if you're in the live chat on YouTube, or actually it would be better uh, for those who are in the discord right now, just kind of, if you can message the question, please do message the question uh, rather than uh, having a sort of back and forth or else this video is going to be like three hours, which is fine. I mean, there's plenty of people out there who I'm sure would would watch all three hours because they just enjoy St. Thomas's commentary on the Apostles' Creed. But this uh, this last point is very important, and it is this desire which grows in us as we meditate upon the incarnation of Christ. So what you need to do, write a little outline of this, and then actually take this to meditation. If you don't know how to meditate, it's, it's very easy. You uh, you just kind of go in a go in a quiet place. Uh, it's preferable maybe have like an icon or a crucifix or whatever. Maybe I, I don't even care if it's like a little printout picture of something. Just go to a place and somehow uh, make it sacred. And then what you do is you first you pray, so you invoke the Holy Spirit to to illumine you, and then you digest uh, whatever. Uh, you want to meditate on. So let's say it's the incarnation of Christ. You digest it by reading whatever you may you may have. And then after reading that, you uh, do what's called meditation. So you, you kind of just, uh, at this point, it's more of like a discursive thinking, thinking over, mulling over, considering uh, kind of like that that self-dialogue you get uh, when, when you're thinking about something. But then this self-dialogue doesn't stay self-dialogue because upon your consideration of all of that stuff, then um, write a collect. A collect is basically a short written prayer. It's going to uh, thank God for certain, uh, a certain uh, mystery of his grace and then petition him uh, on the basis of that. And then from this point, uh, as you get better, you may move into move into uh, from meditation, which is discursive to contemplation, which is a uh, direct, uh, which is an extraordinary uh, a mystical grace. But uh, this stuff, uh, all I'm saying is just meant uh, for meditation on. Uh, you should be having a daily time of, of uh, mental prayer. Uh, and this stuff is perfect for it. Uh, I think Alphonsus, uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori said that mental prayer is uh, ordinarily necessary for salvation. It, it's, it's super, super important. So I'm going to check questions real quick before we get into Article 4. Okay. Okay, so nice little advice on despair. Thank you. Hey, what's up, Mike Lofton? What do you mean, Mike Lofton? Okay, so I'm going to check the chat. Okay, so can I confirm I enjoy St. Thomas's commentary? What is the dignity of man? Okay, I hope I sufficiently explain that enough. Okay, so... How do we know that the created imitates the divine? Okay, somebody asked that. Okay, that's a good question. So uh, basically, in short, uh, because it's a fundamental principle that what what proceeds uh, from a certain cause in in a certain manner, at least analogically, 
is going to imitate that cause. So, for example, you have a child. Your child is going to look like you. Or um, in a certain way, like let's say you make make like a boat, even if you make a boat, uh, that is somehow going to reflect uh, your own craftsmanship. That's not going to reflect you as a as as a species. Of course, not going to have the form of man or you're not going to some, somehow turn into a boat, but it's going to reflect um, a certain art that you have. So, yeah, we, we, we know um, that creation reflects the perfections of God because God is the creator of it. And yeah, so what is the distinction between persons, if not numerical? So the distinction between the persons is a real distinction. Uh, and the distinction between the person and the essence is going to be what's called a minor virtual distinction. But this is this is going to be more so um, an issue we're going to run into when we start to discuss uh, the Compendium Theologiae. That's going to, where we're going to start to put some scholastic meat, well, some meat, ph philosophical meat on these, on these just general bones of, of doctrine. Okay, so how does Christ being the terminus of the intellect interact with the simplicity of God? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a question for later, uh, but I can uh, briefly answer that. So um, Christ as the terminus of uh, intellection, it's because it's a full communication of the uh, divine essence that happens. It isn't uh, something which is said to be transient. Because in order for there to be like a break in simplicity, what you're going to have to have is you're going to have to have some sort of um, communication outside of uh, one of the persons uh, in a procession, where it's uh, a full communication of that self-same uh, divine essence that's possessed. So if that makes sense, but again, we're going to be getting into this later. So St. Thomas said that the angel allowed the patriarchs to worship uh, him. Yes. So this is actually something fun. Um, this is actually a bit apologetic uh, because Protestants will often point to that section in the Apocalypse of John where the angel tells uh, John not to worship him, but to worship the lamb. That really, according to St. Thomas, has to do with the incarnation because uh, all of man had been even further uh, dignified by its uh, specific, that is, according to species, identification with the humanity of Christ. But before that, um, they were looking forward to the incarnation. The incarnation hadn't happened yet. So that was uh, a certain image. So that's St. Thomas's interpretation, and it's cool. Uh, I, I like it. Okay, so what is the difference between mental prayer and contemplation? Okay, so this is a bit uh, getting a bit off track again, but uh, I will I will answer it because I did mention it. So <laughs> um, the with mental prayer, mental prayer is basically uh, you have you have two types of prayer, and prayer is in the most broad sense a sort of uh, petitioning of God. Uh, that that's the most essential part of prayer. Actually, is petition. Um, so when it comes to, uh, prayer, it can be in two forms and one way can be, uh, vocal. So if we go to a King, let's say, and we speak to the King and petition him for something, let's say we ask him for, uh, I don't know, a hundred dollars. You ask the King for a hundred dollars. You really need your hundred dollars. So you ask your King for a hundred dollars verbally, that would be uh, akin to vocal prayer. Uh, but let's say the king was happened to be omnipotent and omniscient. He could re completely read your intellect. You would just be able to kind of uh, go before the king 
and humble yourself before him, and he would know uh, your desires, your desired petitions before you even said it. So that's that's what mental prayer is, is uh, you usually get a little bit of a text that's going to provide uh, food for thought. You're going to go over it, uh, read it, and then from this, you're going to uh, sit before God and like interiorly petition him. And then this may lead uh, contemplation. Contemplation is said to be a simple gaze towards uh, towards God. So contemplation isn't something which is conjured up uh, within you. So not conjured up by any sort of like discursive uh, process of reasoning, but it's something which is uh, sort of directly infused into you. Um, so that, that's the difference between the two. So, okay, so somebody asked about the angel of the Lord, since those are Christophanies. Um, so... This is this is getting a bit off track, uh, but actually, I was just discussing with Hassan about this, so I might as well. But yeah, none of the uh, old old covenant uh, appearances were like literally pre incarnations of Christ. None of them were; they were angels who offered some sort of similitude or image of Christ um, before his coming. So they were still angels. Um, they weren't like literally Christ. They were images of Christ. Um, so yeah, that's that's my quick answer. I know that's like the least popular answer because everybody wants to see like, oh wait, no, that was actually like kind of like a pre-incarnate uh, coming of Christ. But no, I I, I think that would be um, actually impossible. So when the the fathers call them Christophanies rather than um, just mere angels, they mean that they're in a certain special way. Um, Imaging the pre-incarnate coming of Christ. Okay, so let's continue with Article 4. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So, uh, he provides his little uh, example. It is just as necessary for the Christian to believe in the passion and death of the Son of God as it is to believe in his incarnation. For as St. Gregory says... There would have been no advantage in his having been born for us unless we had profited by his redemption. That Christ died for us is so tremendous a fact that our intellect can scarcely grasp it, for in no way does it fall in the natural way of our understanding. This is what the apostle says, I work in your days a work which you will not believe if any man shall tell it to you. The grace of God is so great and his love for us is such that we cannot understand what he has done for us. Now we must believe that, although Christ suffered death, yet his Godhead did not die. It was his human nature in Christ that died. For he did not die as God, but as man. And this is clearly from three examples. So I wanted to uh, just quickly vindicate St. Thomas from uh, Nestorianism and kind of stop you guys from uh, misunderstanding what he's trying to say here. So um, this is the difference between... Um, that which dies, and like the subject which dies. Uh, St. Thomas says uh, in his condemnation of Nestorius in the last article, he, he condemns the fact that there are two subjects of predication. So you can't say, well, God did this, and then the sort of man attached to God uh, did that, and we kind of view them as one thing, and therefore we're going to name them in one way, but not really. 
That's not that's not how St. Thomas is thinking of Christology. That's a heretical understanding. But rather, uh, Christ uh, at the second, well, the second person of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, the word of the eternal word of God subsists in two natures. So um, he has humanity has a human nature and he has a divine nature. But the person is the second person of the Trinity. So we call the person God. So we can say uh, God did not die as God. So God did not die as God. The first use of God is talking uh, in a person in the sense of a divine person. So the divine person did not die in his divinity. Rather, the divine person died in his humanity. So I hope that clear clears things up a bit for you with some of the ways in which we talk about the um, incarnation and the suffering of Christ. This is called uh, technically, if you want to read more about it, um, this is called the communicatio idiomatum. Um, if somebody would put that yeah it did sound a bit in the story at first yes it does <laughs> i just want to make sure I've, uh, sometimes you just get uh medieval speaking like this so if somebody wants to type if anybody knows how to spell communicatio idiomatum somebody wants to type it in the new aquinas academy because i don't feel like doing it okay so he gives some examples the first is taken from us now when a man dies in the separation of the soul from the body the soul does not die but the body or the flesh does die so also in the death of Christ, his divinity did not die, but his human nature suffered death. See, this is, this is a much better way of stating things. His divinity did not die. So God's divinity did not die, but God's human nature suffered death. This is what he's trying to say. But if the Jews did not slay the divinity of Christ, oops, St. Thomas, you weren't supposed to say that. But if the Jews did not slay the divinity of Christ, it would seem that their sin was not any greater than if they had killed any ordinary man. In answering this, we may say that it was as if a king were clothed only in one garment. And if somebody befouled this garment, such a one had committed a grave crime as if he had defiled the king himself. Likewise, although the Jews could not slay God, so that is the Jews could not, the uh, sorry, the Jews could not slay um, God in his divinity, yet putting to death the human nature which Christ assumed, so the Jews put to death the human nature which Christ assumed, they were as severely punished if they had put the Godhead itself to death. So notice, he's speaking in terms of natures right here. Uh, just clarify. So I, I think a better example, um, actually, I will I will not give the rest of the examples. Um, but I think a better example uh, for this, because I think some of those examples uh, if could be badly understood. But it'd be like if uh, if I went up to you, let, let's see somebody in the, in the Discord. If I went up to... Uh, Alex, Alex, if I went up to you, yes, that's how you spell communicatio edimatum. Thank you. If I went up to you and I just uh, like absolutely like destroyed your pinky toe, let's say, I just like just obliterated. I got like an like a comically large anvil and I dropped it right on your pinky toe. You just get utterly destroyed. Would you? Uh, what got? What got hurt? Your body or your soul? Well, obviously it was your body that got hurt, not your soul. So you got hurt according to your body. You didn't get hurt according to your soul. You can't just like hurt a soul. I can't just like grab your soul out of you and drop an anvil on it. You can't do that. But if I were to hurt your feelings, I would say I hurt you. And if I were to hurt your pinky toe, I would say I hurt you. Yet... Uh, the ways in which that single subject, because it's still Alex getting hurt, it's hurt in two different uh, manners or modes. So in a similar way, when we're thinking about the death of Christ, 
the one person, the second person, the Trinity, the one subject, uh, both knew all things in his divinity and uh, did not have unlimited uh, knowledge in his humanity. If the hold that he was both immutable in his divinity and died in his humanity. Notice we're predicating it of the same subject, but we're predicating it of the same subject in two different respects. So we're saying according to humanity, according to divinity. We need to be very clear about that. But yeah. So thank you for being my example, Alex. So um, continuing. So why? Why did why did uh, Christ die? Why did Christ die? Let's find out. Okay, so it, it was a remedy to such an extent that in the passion of Christ, we find a remedy against all the evils which we incur by our sins. And by our sins, we incur five different evils. So what's the purpose of the incarnation? What's the purpose of Christ's coming? Remedy for evil. That's the purpose. The first evil uh, that man incurs by sin is the defilement of his soul. Just as virtue gives the soul its beauty, so sin makes it ugly. So by sinning, you make your soul ugly. You defile it. You make it dirty. But all this was taken away by the passion of Christ, whereby Christ poured out his blood as a laver wherein sinners are cleaned. So too the soul is washed by the blood of Christ in baptism, because then a new birth is had in virtue of his blood. And hence when one defiles one's soul by sin, one offers insult to Christ in the sin more gravely than before one's baptism. So the first one, clean our souls from defilement. And this cleansing initially happens through baptism. Second, we commit an offense against God. So not only do we, we sully ourselves, but we also offend God. And this is an offend in the sense of like cause emotional turmoil. No, this is to break a certain law which requires um, a debt of there there's a certain debt of justice which is incurred so god as the just judge the judge of all the earth he will do right and um, and punish so we commit an offense against god a sensual man loves the beauty of the flesh but god loves spiritual beauty which is the beauty of the soul. When, however, the soul is defiled by sin, God is offended, and the sinner incurs his hatred. So this isn't uh, hatred uh, in a sense that we sort of think of as like an emotional disturbance. No, this is God's will towards uh, the good, well, in love of his own justice, whereby uh, by his uh, punishment, he will um, sort of express uh, his, quote, hatred. The reason why we call it hatred is there's a certain analogy between the man who has hatred. What does is, what is a man who hates another do? He usually will somehow uh, work towards the destruction of that other person that he hates. In a similar way, when we think about God, God's uh, hatred isn't something which is a passion in him, but it is a disposition of his will towards love of his own justice. Wherein in the sin that we commit against God, in the offense that we uh, commit against God, in his hatred, that is, um, as I explained it, 
um, certain analogy, he will seek the destruction of sinners. So that is the um, effect of our sin. This also is removed by the passion of Christ, which made satisfaction to God the Father for sin, which man himself could never do. The charity and obedience of Christ in his suffering was greater than the sin and disobedience of the first man. If we think about it in a certain way, what is the opposite of hatred? What is the opposite of hatred? Well, the opposite of hatred would not be seeking the destruction of another person, but rather it would be seeking um, the continued existence or the construction of a certain person. Be seeking the good of another, if you want to put it like that. So in uh, Christ's passion, by his exceeding uh, love for us, by his exceeding uh, love for his father, by his obedience, he offered up that obedience and that charity on behalf of our disobedience and our um, hatred, our own hatred and um, other vices. So um, God, rather than being offended, is offered a certain gift of love. And then in being uh, offered the gift of love, his wrath is appeased. And that gift of love is the passion of Christ dying for sinners. Third, we've become weakened by sin. So we don't only get defiled, we don't only offend God, but we also are weakened. We become weak. Become weak. You're, you're not strong anymore. You're weak. And you probably notice this. This isn't something that should come to a surprise. If you know, if you know yourself, you'll know when you sin, you get weak. Third, we have weak, we have been weakened by sin. When a person sins for the first time, he believes that he will thereafter keep away from sin. This is foolishness. This is stupidity. This is really bad. This is really dumb. Don't do this. You are not promised when you fall into mortal sin, you are never promised to be given contrition again. You are not promised that. You aren't. You just aren't. You aren't promised to be brought back into a state of grace. That's not something you're promised. So by choosing to mortally sin just once, that could put an end to your state of grace for the rest of your life. Because who knows if God is going to inspire that sense of contrition for that sin that you've committed. You don't know. It could never happen. So we are weakened in that way. When we sin, we think, oh, well, we're just going to we're just going to do it once. You know, I just, just kind of got to scratch the itch, you know, of my concupiscence. But no, you go in there and you sin and you're weakened. So it becomes uh, if, if it's a mortal sin, it becomes impossible by your own power. If it's a venial sin. You're very much weakened towards being able to be contrite. So it, this is just the this is just sort of silly reasoning that we all have. You know, the um, what, what, what is it called now? The intrusive thoughts. They're, they're intrusive thoughts that we all have like, oh, I kind of kind of want to do this, you know, and I'll just do it. And then, you know, I'll, I'll just you, you have like a certain group of people. Uh, there, there's some trads who think about this. It's it's really disturbing. They think like, oh, you know, just you go to confession. It's confessions kind of just like my um, my not really my medicine for my weakness, because it is medicine for weakness. But it's something which is a, a sort of get out of jail free card. So like, oh, yes, I will. I will just go fornicate with my girlfriend and I'll just go to confession afterwards. I'll just ask the mercy of God. 
he hasn't promised that you will actually have contrition and to have at least um, attrition is necessary um, for the sacrament of confession to be efficacious. So it's just, this is just the silly ways we think. Don't think like this. It's stupid. It really is stupid. And it, it's literally like just jumping in front of a train and being like, well, I guess I'll jump out of the way in time. No, it's stupid. It's stupid. Let's say you, you jump in front of a train and you're paralyzed from the neck down. That's what you're doing. And you're just hoping somebody's going to carry you off the tracks. No, it's idiotic. Don't Please don't do it. It's really bad. It's a really bad way of thinking. If you see yourself getting in this way of thinking, just realize, just think about me right now saying that this is stupid. Because it really is. Third, we have been weakened by sin. When a person sins for the first time, he believes that he will thereafter keep away from sin. Everybody thinks it. it this is this is this is an eight hundred year old text. People have always been thinking this, and you know, a lot of those people who think like that, um, they just never come back. I'm sure we've all met people like that. I've met people like that. They think just one time, and then boom, they're never back. He believes that he will thereafter keep away from sin, but what happens is the very opposite. This is because by that first sin, he's weakened and made more prone to commit sins. And sin has more and more power over him. Such a one, as far as he alone is concerned, has lowered himself to such a condition that he cannot rise up. And is like a man who jumps into a well from which, without God's help, he can never be rescued. There you go. Even better. You just jump into a well. Like, why would you jump into a well? It's like, oh, a passerby is going to grab me. You, you don't know. It's stupid. After the fall of man, our nature was weakened and corrupted. We were made more prone to sin. Christ, however, lessened this sickness and weakness, although he did not entirely take it away. So now man is strengthened by the passion of Christ, and sin is not given such power over him. Moreover, he can rise clean from his sins when aided by God's grace conferred by the sacraments, which receive their efficacy from the passion of Christ. Indeed, before the passion of Christ, Few there were who lived without falling into mortal sin, but afterwards many have lived and are living without falling into mortal sin. This is this is actually something I want to uh, focus on real quick. Oftentimes, just the way in which we think about the spiritual life is we just think like, ah, you know, I, I, I guess I might like try to avoid mortal sin long enough. Um, so maybe I can like kind of get like wedge myself into heaven. I hope I die when I'm in a state of grace, like fingers crossed. I, I hope it happens. That's the way a lot of us think about the spiritual life. It's really bad because we're given the sacraments. We're given the grace of Christ, which flows from his passion. We're given the Eucharist. We're given confession. We've been baptized. We've been confirmed. We, we, we have um, the the heart of God open to us to where if you ask, you will receive. This is all the stuff you have. So when you just sort of have this like gloomy attitude, like, God, I guess I might like kind of skirt my way into heaven. Maybe you're, it's really a great offense to the work of Christ because Christ has worked in order to win grace for us, that through uh, the administration of the sacraments, through the petitioning of God, he has opened up the throne room of heaven for us to waltz right in and to ask. You have not because you ask not. So you could be aiming for the perfection of the spiritual life. That's what you could be aiming for. That's what 
everybody is called, uh, especially by the Second Vatican Council, actually. Uh, but this is uh, in one of St. Thomas's works called On the Perfection of the Spiritual Life. You are called and you can achieve perfection. That's what you're called. That's what you're called for. You can achieve. It's in the ordinary working of grace, the mystical life, for example. Those things aren't just uh, somehow out of reach uh, for us. With grace and uh, by the power of God, to which he has promised that uh, that he will, um, if petitioned, if asked, he will give. We can do these things. And yet you have a lot of people who are just out there like sort of mopey, like, oh, I guess I'm kind of just like attached to this and I won't really won't really uh, be able to go through it. No, that that's we've been given greater promises like that than that. By the writings of in the um, council of the saints over the ages who have dealt with these same problems as you, you can um, through contemplating uh, what they have said to you through due use of the sacraments through the petitioning of God, by the power of grace, you can overcome. It, it, any, anybody listening right now, if they wanted to, if they were motivated enough, if they, um, if it, through grace, can become saints, every single one of us, every last one of us. Because, you know, Christ in his passion, death, and resurrection, ascension into heaven, has uh, given us gifts from on high, has opened the throne room, throne room of God for us. These are all the things he has done to us, done for us. Don't don't just don't just sit in despair and pretend like it's just it's just all over. It's never been more over. No, it's not over. It's not over. It's we're we're back. We're 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 so back. So don't despair on these various issues. Don't. We all can become saints. And you don't have because you don't ask. So continuing. Fourth, we incur the punishment due to sin. For the justice of God demands that whosoever uh, whosoever sins must be punished. So we also have the uh, the punishment. But everybody kind of, kind of already knows about this, this aspect. Fifth, and then we occur the uh, banishment from the kingdom of heaven, which we also um, know about this. So... Um, so also, uh, when it comes to the contemplation of the passion of Christ, it is a great remedy for sin. He gives us an example of charity, gives us an example of, uh, down here he says, patience. Uh, if you want to read all this on your own, you can. Gives you an example of humility, gives you an example of obedience. This is This is why I say to you guys, just get a crucifix and just look at it. Get a crucifix and look at it. Consider the various virtues of Christ there. Consider what what he has what he has done for you. You you can you can fruitfully contemplate on all this stuff. It's great. And then also uh, contempt for earthly things. Contempt for earthly things very important. But I have already spent an hour and ten minutes. And I'm barely halfway through. So I'm going to check um, questions. Why are humans naturally drawn to sin in the absence of grace and under grace, even though it is something that we should find repulsive slash disgusting? So th through the sin of Adam, we have uh, not only the privation of original justice, which is the, the sort of complex of gifts 
that we had that Adam had from God. We also have the uh, fomis kati, the, the the flames of sin or fuel of sin. So there is uh, there's a concupiscence in us, which not under uh, not restrained by grace will uh, eventually weaken us to the extent of uh, to sin. So there you go. Okay, so is God's love for us greater than that uh, of his, the saints? Many saints died for others. No greater love has he than the one who dies for his friends. Is God's love for us greater than of his saints? Well, yeah, God's love for us is greater than the saints. Uh, how did Christ remain human if his soul was separated from his body? Since a human is only a human in the union of soul and body. Okay, so the, uh, the actually the controversy about corruptionism is whether somebody um, remains a person. So, but we, we, we can actually discuss the whole corruption thing later. Um, does God feel anything? Does he and his divinity have any passions, be it love or anything else? No, he doesn't have any passions. All of, uh, all of the passions that we use to describe them, even something like love, is really a, dis a firm disposition of will because passions come from our uh, lower sensitive faculties, not from our... Um, intellectual faculty. So if God uh, in his hatred wants the destruction of sinners, why is hell eternal and not finite? So um, I think we're equivocating on the use of the term destruction. Um, destruction doesn't mean like the dragging down to a negation of existence. That's not what I, what I meant by that, but I meant uh, a certain punishment or um, I, I guess like a, some sort of privation of existence. Of uh, a not necessarily negation of existence, if you remember that distinction. Uh, how do you know if you're actually contrite? Um, I, the, there was something who I think I was reading St. Alphonsus Liguori uh, on this, and he basically said, um, You know, uh, you're contrite because you like really want to be contrite. Uh, but, but again, I, I don't really have um, too satisfying an answer to. Um, self-knowledge of of contrition but i'm sure one of the spiritual writers has written on it a good bit are men born after the passion of christ less prone to sin uh yes yes actually um because um before the passion of christ uh there christ only acted as final cause but um after the passion of christ Christ acts both as final cause, so in uh, in our desire to, to follow after him um, and to, to contemplate him most importantly, but also acts as efficient cause of the sacraments. So we have, we have the fullness of the revelation um, of Christ, where before they kind of saw him in shadows. Um, when God died, was he humiliated or exalted? Uh, he was exalted in his resurrection and ascension. Okay. Uh, when a human feels good when he sins, what kind of goodness is that produced by sin? Uh, I don't. You mean like pleasurable? Like sensitive pleasure um, isn't isn't like a, a higher good uh, at all. Actually, if sensitive pleasure is, if anything, any other faculty is submitted to the sensitive faculties, then uh, you have a disordered soul. So I think you might be talking about that. I think we might be equivocating. Okay, I will... I will continue. Okay, so he descended to hell on the third day. He arose again. Oh, somebody needs a mute. Okay, good. He muted. 
So let's see. This is uh, the descent. The descent to hell is is fun. Um, fun. I don't know if fun is the is the right word for it. But the descent into hell isn't something that actually gets discussed too much. And that's because we have a relatively weak um, Holy Saturday liturgy, which, if you remember, Good Friday, the date of the crucifixion of Christ, Holy Saturday is the date traditionally when we celebrate Christ's um, descent into hell and the harrowing of hell. It's actually an ancient homily on this. It's really good. But this isn't something we uh, traditionally discuss too much. So this is going to be um, interesting. So the death of Christ was the separation of his soul from his body, as it uh, is with other men. But the divinity was so indissolubly conjoined to the Christ, the man, uh, that although his soul and body were disunited, his divinity was also most perfectly united to both the soul and the body. This we have seen above. Therefore, in the sepulchre, his body was altogether with the Son of God, who together with his soul descended to the underworld. There are four reasons why Christ, together with his soul, descended into the other underworld. And I'll just uh, summarize. So the first reason was to take upon the punishment for sin. The second was to deliver his friends. The third is to triumph over the devil. And the fourth was to uh, free the just. So um, now we may gather four considerations from this for our own instruction. First, a firm hope in God. No matter how much one is afflicted, one ought always to trust in the assistance of God and trust in him. Because if, if Christ went to the underworld in order to save his friends, we, we need to have a firm trust in God. There's nothing so serious as to be in the underworld. Uh, uh, if therefore Christ delivered those who were in the underworld, what great confidence ought every friend of God have that he will be delivered from all his troubles. Second, we ought to conceive a fear of God and avoid all presumption. This is, this is so great how Thomas is seemingly always doing this, putting hope next to um, fear and next to a consideration of avoiding presumption. We've already seen that Christ suffered for sinners and descended into the underworld for them. However, he did not deliver all sinners, but only those who were free from mortal sin. He left there those who departed life in mortal sin. Hence, anyone who descends into hell in mortal sin has no hope of deliverance and will remain in hell as long as the Holy Fathers remain in paradise. That is for all eternity. Third, we ought to arouse in ourselves a mental anxiety. This is a, this is a fun one. Um, a lot of people uh, don't like that word anxiety, but uh, he uses it. We ought to arouse ourselves in mental anxiety. Since Christ descended into the underworld for our salvation, we ought to go to, we ought in all care, go down there in spirit by considering, for instance, its punishments, as did the holy man Hezekiah. So in our, in our consideration, in our meditations, it's actually it's actually good to contemplate hell. Um, contemplate the fact that you will die and the fact that some people go to hell. Those are very good things to contemplate. He has he has this great, great quote right here. This is probably one of my favorite quotes from St. Thomas. Indeed, he who during this life frequently descends into hell by thinking of it will not easily fall into hell at death. For such meditation keeps one from sin and draws one out of it. We see how men of this world guard themselves against wrongdoing because of the temporal punishments. But with how much more care ought they avoid the punishments of hell, which far exceeds all of its destruction, its severity, and its very nature. Fourth, there comes uh, to us in this an example of love. 
The example of love is that Christ um, decided to go into uh, into hell, to the free, and, and hell, we're using hell in equivocal sense here, not the, the place the damned, uh, but a certain holding cell, if you want to put it like that, the underworld. Uh, therefore, let us deliver those who are in purgatory. So um, if Christ was willing to go to the underworld to free those um, in the limbo of the fathers, then we ought to, uh, through our own prayers and sacrifices, to pray for the holy souls in purgatory. So, um, so from this, uh, we must necessarily know two things, the glory of God and the punishment of hell. For being attracted by his glory and made fearful by his punishments, we take warning and withdraw ourselves from sin. This is this is just very good um, spiritual advice right here. I hope everybody just ends up falling in love with uh, these smaller works by St. Thomas uh, for devotional purposes. Um, this really is the entirety of the spiritual life. <laughs> Any sort of uh, meditations that you have uh, really boil down to the consideration of the glory of God and the punishment of hell, where we are attracted by his glory and then we're made fearful by punishments. This is, uh, I guess, uh, some may take this in like a Machiavellian sense. Is it, is it, is it better to be uh, feared or loved? And of course, Machiavelli's answer is it's better to be both. But this isn't fear, uh, which is an unjust fear, which, which Machiavelli was talking about. But this is, this is a fear, which is a just fear. Because we are fearful of his just punishments on the wicked. Which uh, impels us. Um, not, not, just, not just, we're not just impelled to love God just on, his, on account of his loveliness. We are impelled to love God also due to the fearfulness of his punishments. And this is actually the first gift of the Holy Ghost is the fear of God. It's really interesting because it's Catholic teaching that uh, along with the virtues are infused the gifts of the Holy Ghost uh, in all those who have sanctifying grace. So you see that that Christ himself, uh, although in a much different way, had the gift of the fear of the Holy Ghost. Now, he wasn't fearing um, the punishments of hell, of course, but he was fearing, or uh, at least I think another word for it, and I think a better word for it is what St. Thomas brings up uh, earlier with mental anxiety. There was a certain mental anxiety when it comes to being separated from God, it's called a filial fear rather than a servile fear. We don't fear God like, um, I don't know, a, a battered wife would fear um, her husband. It's not how we fear God. We fear God as uh, sons who love their father so much that they would fear uh, in any case to displease them. Not because they're going to get beat, but because they would, uh, they would somehow displease their father. So this is a, uh, when it comes to uh, being made fearful for the just, for the, uh, it, when we look at it in the, its most profound sense, what's worse uh, for the saints than being punished with the punishments of hell would be the fact that they're separated um, from the graces of God, separated from the ability to contemplate his glory. It's out of love of God. Um, that this anxiety or, or fear is is wrought up within us. So, okay. 
And then he talks about how they differ from other resurrections, which um, I will. Four things uh, for our instruction. Let us endeavor to arrive spiritually from the death of our soul, which we incur by sin to that life of justice, which is had through penance. Second, let us not delay to rise until our death, but do it at once since Christ arose on the third day. Third, let us rise up again to an incorruptible life and knowing that we may not die um, again, but resolve to sin no more. Fourth, let us rise again to a new and glorious life by voiding all that which formerly were the occasions and causes of our death and sin. This new life is the life of justice, which renews the soul and leads to the life of glory. Okay, so we've gotten to the ascension. I'm going to quickly check, see if there's anything... Uh, how can we say the fullness of Christ descended into hell? I don't. I don't get why. Uh, what you mean by the fullness of Christ? Because his body didn't descend into hell. How would you have a body descend in hell? Did Christ suffer when he was in hell? No, he didn't suffer the punishments to damned. Um, did the just or unjust suffer in hell before Christ came? No, they didn't uh, suffer. Is limbo in hell? Uh, in the broad sense, uh, because uh, here here's like the problem because we're equivocating here because hell. Uh, that's that's why I think it's kind of smart that the translation was using underworld. Um, but hell, we usually think of hell as like the uh, place of, of fire and punishment. But just broadly speaking, it's the it's a sort of place that the oh, yeah. And with your question that the unjust did suffer in hell before Christ came, um, just to clarify with that. So uh, limbo, limbo technically is a part of hell uh, in the broad sense of the underworld. But because of Hollywood and such, uh, we usually think of hell. We think of hell in the sense of like fire and brimstone. But just hell means the underworld. So the limbo, limbo of the fathers was technically hell. Um, the limbo of the infants is technically hell. But do most of the saved pass through purgatory? We can't really know that, but most of the saints say yes. Uh, can our fear of hell become disordered? Uh, can we fear hell too much? No, no, we can't. It's like ask if we can fear fear sin, uh, hate sin too much. No. Okay, so yeah, and some of these questions, Phelps. Uh, maybe we could talk about uh, like sometime this week uh, if you have any that you didn't were not particularly satisfied by. We can like chat about it in the text discussion or something. So, do I agree with this, Saint Robert Bellarmine? They shall see that it is God who holds them bound as if in chains in these everlasting punishments. It is he who hurls upon them the lightning from on high and kindles the furnaces of hell with his almighty breath. <clears throat> then they shall rage like rabid dogs, never ceasing from barking their blasphemies. They shall curse God for creating them and condemning them to death. They shall curse God for continually tormenting them, yet never granting them release. They shall curse his power for inflicting such mighty torture upon them. Yeah, I agree with that. So that's what hell is. That's that's what hell is. Is hell hell isn't hell isn't uh, this is this is something which is a common misconception. Hell isn't a separation from God. Those in hell wish they were separated from God. Actually, hell is the perfect the um, perfect encounter with the justice of God. They wish they were separated. Um, yeah, hell, hell isn't, hell isn't, uh, 
Hell is upheld by the very hand of God. So if bodies can be in heaven, why couldn't a body uh, be in hell? A body can be in hell. Uh, after the resurrection, uh, bodies will be in hell. Um, but before the resurrection, only our Lord and our Lady uh, have. Well, and Elisha and um, Enoch. Enoch, sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I absolutely agree with that quote from St. Robert Bellamy. Okay, so the ascension, and I'll... Oh, yeah, I need to check the YouTube. Okay, so is this only paid questions? No, I'll answer anything. So is the limbo of the fathers the same place as the limbo of the infants? So they're all, all of these are like in the broadly speaking underworld. Enoch. Yeah, yeah, from, uh, what is it? Genesis, beginning of Genesis 6, I think, describes Enoch as... Um, he was walking with God, then one day he was not. Uh, yeah. So. Yep. Uh, is limbo of the father, same place as limbo of the infants. Uh, they're all broadly speaking, the underworld, but it's not the same, like same compartment. If, if, you, if you want to put it like that. Okay. So. Finn 150 personal finance. Interesting. Okay, let's get back to it. So Article 6, the Ascension. So besides the resurrection of Christ, we must also believe in his ascension, for he ascended into heaven on the 40th day. And that's, that's what we're celebrating today. So we have three uh, considerations that he gives. First is that it's sublime. Second, that it's reasonable. And then third, uh, that it is beneficial. So I'm just going to cover the first and the third, that it's sublime and that it's beneficial. So um, he ascended above the physical heavens, he ascended above the spiritual heavens, and he ascended uh, up to the very throne of the Father. So what, is it, what does it mean that he ascended up to the throne of the Father? Now, it should uh, not be taken in the literal sense, but figuratively, that Christ is at the right hand of God. Inasmuch as Christ is God, he is said to sit at the right hand of the Father, that is, in equality with the Father. And as Christ is man, he sits at the right hand of the Father, that is, in a more preferable place. So that that's that's what the ascension uh, means. It doesn't mean that like somehow you have God the Father have have a throne, and then Christ has a little throne where he sits next to him. That that's not how it works. The humanity of Christ um, is is in heaven uh, currently, um, and there's never been a break in his in his divinity. He's always uh, in a in perfect uh, circumcession is the technical word with uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So uh, it's in accord with reason. First, because heaven was due to Christ by his very nature. Uh, second, heaven is due to Christ because of his victory. And then third, the uh, ascension is reasonable because of the humility of Christ. So those who uh, humble themselves will be exalted, which is why Christ himself was exalted. Okay, now uh, it is very beneficial, seen uh, in three reasons. First is our leader, because he ascended in order to lead us. We had lost the way, but he has shown it to us. So I hope this is something that uh, in meditation gets impressed on you guys, is that when we look at the life of Christ, we see um, a certain participation in that life given to us in the life of the believer, especially in the life of the, the holy soul. So what we have is Christ, um, he was incarnate. 
in becoming man so we might become God. Christ uh, taught that we may learn. Christ uh, suffered that we may unite our sufferings to Christ and that we also may escape the sufferings of hell. Christ died that we may live. Christ uh, descended into hell. Um, he descended into hell in order to sanctify death. Christ resurrected in order that we may one day resurrect. And Christ ascended that we may uh, one day ascend. So we, we see when we start to contemplate uh, in this light, the life of Christ, is actually something that will help you a lot with your rosary reading through this work on the Apostles' Creed. Because we can see really how to contemplate when we're thinking about um, the benefits of something or the exhortations something may give or the various aspects of something. This is like the heart of scholastic uh, theology is found in the, the contemplation of truth. Second, for our security, for he ascended in order to intercede for us. And third, in order to draw our hearts to himself. For your treasure is there is your heart also. And it withdraws from worldly things. So we look at the, the end, the sort of uh, end in the sense of the, the, the telos or the the final goal of the gospel, you see that it's found uh, in the life of Christ in his ascension. And then in the uh, life of Our Lady, who in a certain way becomes the, uh, the second fruits, uh, the first fruits of Christ's uh, um, application of, of the fruits of his own redemption. You see with uh, with that, the end is the ascension into heaven. What does that teach us? That teaches us not to uh, set our affections on worldly things. We think about the perfection of the spiritual life. And we're going to get into this in a different work that St. Thomas writes about it. The perfection of the spiritual life in is found in what's called the councils. The councils are poverty, chastity, and obedience. The councils tell us to lay aside even those licit worldly things. That we have in order to completely dedicate ourselves to God. You have St. Paul. He says uh, to the Corinthians. That. Um, that those who. Uh, those who are married. Uh, think of the. the uh, how he may please his wife. And those who are unmarried. Uh, think how he may ple uh, please God. That's not an exact quote. That's more of a paraphrase. But you get what I'm saying. Is that when we have even licit attachments to worldly things that it causes us in a certain way not to completely attach ourselves to God. So we're called in the spiritual life to detachment, whether it's through actual detachment in the uh, in formally taking upon yourself the councils in religious life, or it may be through, uh, through habitual detachment, that you are detaching yourself from these things and that you count them to be uh, nothing. And then in counting them to be nothing, you may better attach yourself to God. So that, that's that's the exhortation that's here. Because we see that um, there is this ascent from earth to heaven. And so also uh, our souls um, in our affections must uh, ascent from earthly to heavenly things. Okay, I'm going to check. Perfect for my luminous mystery contemplation. See, all, like I'm telling you. This stuff is going to be really good for that stuff. Okay, I'm going to wait like 30 seconds to see if there's any other questions. And if not, then we are finished. Uh.
Dante was right. Nine layers of hell. True. Okay. Okay, a little off topic. Oh, Phelps, no list of questions. Yeah, this one was a bit of a, a quick one. A little off topic. What do you make of Colossians 2, the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form? Speaking of the ascended Christ, since the finite cannot contain the infinite. Well, I would um, actually let me let me actually pull up. You know, I'll, I'll answer. I'll actually answer that later in text. Um, I'll answer that later. Just like tag me and remind me. and I'll answer it. OK, that seems. Don't think there's any more questions, so I'm going to. About to cut it out. But uh, before we finish, um, if you enjoy the fact that I do this uh, in the YouTube description and then also in the tag thing, there's ways to support the whole new Aquinas Academy project. Um, sorry that I made this so long and then had to rush through everything in the end. Uh, hopefully next time it will be better since I only have three articles to do. Or maybe I should just learn how to better space my time out. But yeah, uh, that's all. Uh, thank you and God bless.